Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller and I'm honored to serve as your ongoing host. Today is perhaps a highlight seminal time in not just our On Leadership series, but my career at Franklin Covey. I am honestly humbled and honored to have the co-founder of the Franklin Covey Company, Hiram Smith, here in our studios. Hiram, welcome. Thank you. Truly an honor. (laughs) I, I, I think it's safe to say you are a personal hero of mine for 20 plus years. No, you are you are coach and mentor to literally millions of people around the world. Some might say billions. My first experience with you was before I ever met you. I worked for the Disney company back in Orlando in 1992. It was my first job sort of out of college. And my brother, four years my senior, who was a very accomplished engineer, purchased with his own money a Franklin Day Planner. <laughs> and he sent it to me my first day at the oh. Disney company. I remember the restaurant I was in having breakfast before my first day on the job, and I was opening up the kit because he was so dedicated to the system but wanted to make an investment in my career. And I remember like it was yesterday, the, um, the gratitude I was thinking uh, of my brother, to my brother, not knowing much about you or the company, and here I am 27 years later, interviewing you in this studio. I mean, I cool. words don't describe the honor and the privilege today oh, to have you here. I remember when you were in Chicago. That's right. You were the guy in Chicago. Where I met my wife. That's yes, exactly right. That's and right. I was at your wedding. Most people don't know. It was, my <laughs> wedding was about uh, nine years ago. And what an honor to have uh, Gail and Hiram Smith walk into the church. That was very cool. And it was, I mean, to this day, we watched the video to see. You know what my impression was when I came to your wedding? I did I met well. met your wife. <laughs> I said, you know, I always knew you were a great salesman. But when I met your wife, you were one heck of a salesman. Yeah. <laughs> I'll uh, tell you that. Yeah, I've done well. She is wonderful. With my wife. Thank you for the compliment. Yeah. And you have too. I've met your wife. Yeah. I've been to your house in St. George, and your wife is the consummate um, servant leader. Is she, she not? She is, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we'll talk more about your wife in a few okay. minutes. So I'm excited about this hour. I'll remind our viewing audience, we generally try to, ha- try to have these interviews go about 35, 45 minutes. But I'm going to warn you, buckle up, because today we have a man of immense knowledge, wisdom, experience. Hiram, you've had the highest of highs and some of the lowest of lows in life. I hope today you'll share some of those and how you've managed through those. But I want to take the entire hour to suck as much out of you as possible because you have an immense amount of wisdom to share today. Great. So in in the studio today, I've told you these are some of my favorite (laughs) 250 or so books. You have a place of honor up in the back with two of your books, (laughs) 10 Natural Laws and What Matters Most, two books that have had an immense impact on, you know, hundreds of millions of people over your 50, nearly 60 years in business, uh, I want to organize today's conversation in kind of four loose parts, if okay. you will. First, I want to talk about sort of um, what's been your journey? Where have you been? Every interview I open with, how did you get here today? Because I'm personally fascinated with people as accomplished as you are. What are some of the decisions you made, opportunities you pursued to, to kind of land in this chair today? So kind of first, um, where you've been. Okay. Secondly, along the way, what have you learned? What are some of the key nuggets you've learned around life and influence and what's important, what's not important? You have the ability to probably have an influence, provide for anything, anyone you'd like. I'd love to know what have you learned is truly important as you enter sort of the second half of your career. Okay. 
off camera we talked about kind of where you are in life. You're just entering your, you said the 25th anniversary. Of my 50th birthday. Of your yeah. 50th birthday, That's which great. means you're somewhere in the <laughs> mid 70s. And I asked you how long you thought you would live. You said about 100. Yeah, easy. Right. Absolutely. Because so, of your lineage, you think you've got 25 good years left in you. Absolutely. I want to figure out, uh, the third point would be sort of what's next for you? What are you doing now? What's ahead? As kind of our third segment. And along the way, you've written this kind of short but impactful tome called The Three Gaps. And your new passion with the Impellus Group is around bringing the three gaps to organizations. I want to talk about that and how, how um, clients and why clients are interested in the three gaps as well. Okay. I've read it twice. It's a really easy read, but it's a powerful uh, kind of a collection of some of the key principles that you've dedicated the better part of 50 plus years, right? Yep. Of your life together. Absolutely. And if we have time at the end, we'll talk some personal things as well too. So, okay, sounds good. So first, let's take a few minutes. Um, where have you been? What's happened in your life? Well, i just give you a quick tutorial on, on my life, okay? I, I was born in Salt Lake City, moved to Hawaii when I was two. My father was the president of the, of the uh, speech department at the University of Hawaii for mm. three years, and it lasted 30. Wow. So I grew up in Hawaii. Hawaii had a big impact on my growing up. Graduated from there, went to Washington, D.C., worked for my senator from Hawaii, Danny Noy, who was, uh, became a very good friend. Uh, I then was asked to go on a mission for my church in 1963, went to London for, for two years, had an amazing experience there, I'll tell you about in a, in a minute. And then I came back, and within a few months, I got a letter from Uncle Sam that said, congratulations, your friends and neighbors have selected you to represent them in the United States Army. That was what year? <laughs> 1966. Okay. And so I was, dra 65, excuse me, it was 1965. So I found myself in uniform, went down to Fort Polk, went through basic training, advanced infantry training, wanted to be an officer, so I went to Officers Candidate School at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. This was during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. I lost a lot of very good friends in the Vietnam War, but when I got out of OCS, I had, was fortunate to graduate the honor graduate, and they gave me a choice what part of the artillery I wanted to be in. So I selected the Pershing Missile System, mm -hmm. and the only place in the world we had those was Germany. And so I went to Germany and commanded a Pershing missile unit there. I had four missiles I was responsible for. The smallest bomb I had was 32 times bigger than the Hiroshima bomb, which is pretty heady for a 23-year-old. I could have started World War III. So, and I was there when Czechoslovakia was invaded by Russia, and we all went out and put our missiles up, and it was a very tense time. But I learned a lot. When I got from that, from that experience, um, uh, at, well, I should say before I went to Germany, I married my wife who was uh, a marvelous woman. This is 1966. And she went with you? She abroad? went with me to Germany. We came back, uh, finished school at uh, Brigham Young University. Uh, then I went, I <clears throat> got a job with ADP. One of my first jobs was ADP, Automatic Data Processing, out of New Jersey. Sure. They do automatic payroll and, and uh, accounting and stuff. And I sold automated systems. I sold Larry Miller, his first mm -hmm. automated inventory control mm -hmm. system in Denver, Colorado. It was mm -hmm. cool. So we go back a long way. Uh, then I was asked to go to uh, California for three years and represent my church running one of their missions, which I did from 78 to 81. While I was there, what I discovered that I really wanted to do and thought I was good at was teaching. And I looked at the academic world. I, I didn't have the credentials to teach there, so I couldn't teach there. So I decided to teach in corporate America. They'll take anybody in corporate <laughs> America. <laughs> and so I created a little seminar company called Golden Eagle Motivation. And that was around 1970? 1970, let's see, that would have been 1981. 
1981. Golden Eagle. Golden Eagle motivation. It was horrible. But in a year, I learned a lot about the seminar business. Yeah. And then, you know, it was a time when there was a recession, and time management, productivity was a big issue. And we thought, uh, Dick Winwood and I were the two that started this thing, and we thought we could teach people to get better organized. And so we came up with a time management seminar we called Time Quest. And the quest was, how do I get better control of my time so that I could increase my productivity and have more time to do things that matter most? And what had inspired and, you up to that point to have a, a passion or interest around time management in particular? Well, it, it, let me go back to my experience in England. When I was in England in 1963, okay. I had an unbelievable opportunity to go spend about an hour with Winston Churchill. There were about 15 or 20 people, and it was in a little uh, lobby of a hotel in Kensington, England. Wow. And while we were there, uh, he told us an interesting story. He said, you know, he said, I, I've, I've been obsessed with this need to make a difference since I was born. I've had this obsession that I was put on the planet to make a difference. And then he said almost wistfully, he said, you know, I hope I've made a difference. And I'm 19, and I sit there, and I, are you kidding me? You saved the free world for crying out loud. I didn't say that, but that's what I'm thinking. I wish I knew then what I know now right. about Winston Churchill. I had no clue right. what, what a miracle this guy was. This was toward the last years of his life. It, two years before he died. I see. And, and so, but a baton was passed to me that day where I, create, I discovered that I had the same obsession. I'm on the planet to make a difference, so how am I going to do that? So when I got through with that experience in running a mission in, for my church, I had this passion that I've got to do something that's going to make a difference. And working for ADP wasn't it. That, mm. They offered me a great job back mm -hmm. in New York. Yeah. And Fine company. I, I, yeah, yeah, good company. It was like 90000 a year mm -hmm. in 1981. That's a lot of money. You right. know? But I said, no, I, you know, I want to teach. So we created the seminar company. And then <clears throat> we, we morphed around. I learned about the seminar company. And then we... Dick Winwood and I started what was initially called H.W. Smith and Associates. Okay. It's a cool name, right. by the way. I really right. like that. <laughs> and we taught time management, and we used daytimers. We gave people daytimers because it never occurred to us to create our own tool. The actual brand, daytimer. Daytimer, right. the actual brand out of Allentown, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And this is a story. I have to kill you if I tell you this because nobody knows this. But we went back to Allentown, Pennsylvania, met with the president of daytimers, said, you know, we're moving a lot of your planners would you be willing to make some changes in it to match the system that we've discovered that help people get better? And he kind of laughed at me. He said, you know, are you kidding? Who are you anyway? He said, we don't. We print three years in advance. We're not going to make any changes. So on the plane, on the way back, this is why I wish I could say this was a revelation we had in the night. Let's do our own too. On the way back, we let's say, well, look, why don't we do our own? You know, why don't we do our own planet? And so we mocked one up on the plane. And we came back, went to Davis Printing up here in Bountiful, and they printed 5,000 copies of the Franklin Plan. We decided to call Franklin. Ambitious because, for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we decided to call Franklin because we used the life of Ben Franklin in our seminar. He carried a book that, like yes, a day planner right. everywhere he went. Right. One of the most organized, productive guys in our history, in my mm -hmm. opinion. So we used his story. So we decided to call it the Franklin Planner. Well, then it didn't make sense to have the company named after me, so we decided to call it the Franklin Institute, was the, uh, the, the company that followed H.W. Smith. And there are just a couple of us, <clears throat> five or six of us, and we started doing seminars. It's an easy business to start, because if you have something to say, print a guidebook and you can mm -hmm. say it, well, you've got a company. Yeah. So we started this company on $3,500. <laughs> 
And it never occurred to us that this was going to make us a lot of money. And nobody believes that, really. But it, it didn't occur to us because we had this vision, this passion, that we really think we can help people get better control of their lives. If they'll do what we teach in the seminar and we'll use the planner, the tool, and the, the Franklin Planner was almost a mistake, but if you'll use the tool, we'll guarantee you that you'll have more control over your life. And we guaranteed our seminars. We said, you know what, if you don't experience a measurable increase in your pro personal productivity, professional, personal, you can have the money back. We never had to pay once on that guarantee. And all of a sudden, boom, you know, you know what, what was really cool is all of a sudden we realized we had more seminars to teach than we could teach ourselves, Dick Winwood and I. Now what do we do? And of course we believed that nobody could teach it as well as we could, right? It was and about so, that time that you began to popularize the belief window concept and the reality model that No, that came later. That, that came, came later. later. That, came, that was in the 90s. This was in the 80s. I so we, now we had, to, we had to clone ourselves. And then to our horror, we discovered that not only could people do it as well as we did, they did it better than we did. And we started adding consultants to go out and teach, you know, Linda Eaton and, you know, the Scott Millers of the world. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, we had this tiger by the tail, you know. And in 1992, we went public as, yeah. on the New York Stock Exchange, which was an unbelievable wow. experience. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> all of a sudden, we had more money than we ever thought we had. We could now acquire other companies. We acquired a printing company, and, and, and in fact, the printing company over here did all our printing. We were 80% of their revenue. Hmm. So we went over and said, we think we'd like to buy you. Makes sense. And they said, I don't think so. I said, well, we'll think we'll start our own printer. Well, on the other hand, I think. <laughs> it was a short conversation. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so we acquired 13 companies, you know, and, and it was really, it was just a, a fun, fun, fun time because we were delivering on the promise. So. This one bookend I talked about was TimeQuest. We started, we thought we could get people more productive, and we did. It worked. And it's been, it's been marvelous. I've, I've spoken all over the world. Dow Chemical took me all over the world. I personally trained 32,000 people at Dow Chemical. All over the world. Wow. <clears throat> and as the, as the co-founder and chairman of Franklin Quest, you were instrumental in what was the merger with Stephen Covey's company Absolutely. back in 1997. 97. Steve Covey and I know each other. I met yeah. Steve Covey in England in 1963. Right. And, you know, I was 19. He was about 80 back then. And, then, you know. I love that you call him Steve. That's a joke. <laughs> few, few, few call him Steve. I, I like call that. him Steve. Yeah. He was a good friend. Yeah. And in fact, we were, met each other at the funeral of the president of Brigham Young University. Yeah. And I said, hey, we ought to get together. You know, all our clients are saying, why don't you guys get together? And that's how the talk started. Yeah. And MR and I got together. And it, yeah. was, right. and it was cool. We became one. Yeah. And now here we are, you know, 20 years after that. Right? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so you served as the, um, the chairman of our board for a while. And then you stepped aside. And Bob Whitman, who's a good friend of yours, has right. been our CEO and chairman for right. almost 17, 18 years yeah, now. Well, I stepped down in 99 <clears throat> as the CEO. Bob Whitman took over as CEO. I stepped right. off. I became. I think I stepped off as chairman. We, Steve and I were vice chairman until '04. Right. Right. I stepped off the board, and Steve right. stayed on for a while. Tell that. me something you learned from Steve. I can't call him Steve from Dr. Covey. Can, uh, <laughs> can I put you on the spot and tell me something you learned from Dr. Covey? Well, you know, I think that was probably one of the best uh, minds in American history. I mean, he had an unbelievable mind, and he, you know, he thought. I'm not a great thinker, but he was a great thinker, and then he was able to put it into words. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the whole advent of the, the Seven Habits is a, quite a story. 
So I learned a lot from Stephen. Stephen's passed now, of course, almost six years. If I was, if Stephen was sitting here, and God forbid you had passed, and I asked Dr. Covey, tell me something you learned from Hiram Smith, what would he say? <laughs> you know, that's, that's a really good question. We spoke together on a number of, right? a number of stages, right? Yeah. And <clears throat> which was really a, a lot of fun to, be, yeah. to speak with Stephen Covey. But um, I, I think he'd probably say something about my energy. He always talked about how do you have so much energy, you know? And I'm, I don't know, I take these little pills and, <laughs> and the rest just works out. I don't energy. believe that. I've been to your ranch and I've seen you yeah. work that, how many acre ranch? 2008. 2000, I've seen yeah. you work that, that's how you stay yeah. in great shape. Okay, thank you for that. Okay. I think that's a gift you just gave the um, 2000 associates around the world in Franklin Covey who you know, wanna know our history from your point of view as well. Let's, before we move to what you're you know, working on now, Share with us what you've learned. I mean, Hiram, you have had enormous success. You have founded a public company. You have spent time with U.S. presidents, world leaders, captains of industry. You spent a lot of time, part of your passion is the U.S. military. You, are, um, you have spoken, I know, over six, 7,000 times. I mean, you said you stopped counting at your 5,000th speech, right? So you mm -hmm. have spoken to hundreds of millions of people you know, 50 plus years of experience. Can you just kind of extemporaneously tell us what you've learned? Yeah, absolutely. Take there, it anywhere you want to go. You know, there are, two, there are two big things that I would share here. That's a great question. Number one is this. Let, let, me, let me share this uh, this way. There's something that I would ask you and everybody who's listening to this to memorize today, but let me introduce it with this experience. Because I've spoken so many times over the years, I have had, I'll bet, over 1,000 people in the last 40 years, 50 years, come up to me before or after a speech during a seminar and they always lower their head and they make sure that nobody's listening and then they lean into me and they say, I wish I lived a hundred years ago when they had more time. <clears throat> really, how much more time did they have? Oh, they had a lot more time. Now, the only difference between now and then is we do stuff faster. We have more options than they have because we do stuff faster. We have the same amount of time, but we have more options than they had. <clears throat> and so the, the issue is, how do I manage all of these options? Now here's the statement, I, you know, we're into speed, okay? If my grandfather missed a train, no big deal, 24 hours, he'd catch another train. My father missed an airplane, by, you know, five hours, catch another airplane. If you and I miss one section of a revolving door, we go nuts, okay? And why do we do that? Because we're into speed. Yeah. You wouldn't tolerate the speed of a PC 15 years ago today, okay? We wouldn't. So here's the statement, the basic, and this is a big learning for me, an aha for me. Do you know what an aha is? It's, the, it's the highest form of a bufo, aha. It's the highest form of a bufo. Do you know what a bufo is? I don't. It's a blinding flash of the obvious. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay. Blinding flash All of right, the obvious. All right, okay. and here's the blinding flash of the obvious. The basic principles that help the, a human being to become more productive and effective have not changed for 6,000 years. Now let me say that again. The basic principles that help a human being become more productive and effective have not changed for 6,000 years. Every generation has to rediscover these principles. We give new name to them. We write books about them. A good friend of ours wrote a book, Seven Habits of Stuff. Steve. I wrote a book, What Matters Most. Read either book. There's not a new idea in either book. Now, it's criminal, really. We make money of that stuff. But think about that now. Seven habits of highly effective people. 
Here's one of the seven habits of highly effective. This is going to blow your circuits. Here's one of the seven habits of highly effective people. Be proactive. Whoa. But hair, hair stands up. It's a 6,000-year-old idea. Here comes another one of the seven habits. First things first. Whoa. It's got to be 21st century, right? 6,000-year-old <laughs> idea. Now, what's the magic? The magic was Stephen putting the seven together. Right, and sequencing them. And sequencing. And the magic and the genius was how they're taught for the 21st century. 78 foreign language translations, 18 million copies of that book were sold. A successful book, by the way, for Simon & Schuster is 50,000 copies. That's a roaring success. 17 million copies. Now, what's the magic, okay? The principles are brought into today. Now, why do I make an issue of this? Because what has not changed, Scott, in the last 100 or 500 years is you and me. We're people. We still got to get out of bed in the morning. We got to put our pants on one leg at a time. We got to go to the bathroom five or six times. We're folks. And so the principles that help us, folks, become better us, folks, haven't changed for a long time. Now, with that in mind, Here's the next big aha for me. And this is a massive discovery for me and why I'm doing what we're doing. We get to what, why, why we're doing. This has a, had a big impact. I discovered that there are three basic emotions that motivate the human being to do everything we do. These emotions are hierarchical in nature, okay? And we start with the lowest one, go to the mid one, and the upper one. It's important to understand these emotions because whether you like it or not, at any given point in the day, you are functioning under one of these three emotions. Okay? Okay. Now here's the lowest emotion. The lowest emotion that motivates activity is the emotion of fear. Mm -hmm. Fear is a great motivator. And the feelings that surface at the fear level are, I have to do this. Some of us go to work in the morning cause out of right. fear. <clears throat> I have to go. If I don't go, I won't get paid. Family starve. All that's bad. I have to do this. Some of our kids go to school out of fear. Dad's 6'8", weighs 300 pounds. If I don't go to school, things get ugly at my house. I have to go. Some of us take our spouses to dinner out of fear. I don't take my spouse to dinner. Things get bad at my house. So three, four times a year, I'll take her to dinner. Okay? <laughs> fear is a great motivator. The job gets done to a degree. The next or higher emotion that motivates activity in our lives is the emotion of duty, responsibility. And the feelings that come here are, I ought to do this. Feelings that fear, I have to. Feelings that ought to, at uh, duty, I ought to. Some of us go to work in the morning because we've been raised with the ethic that says give a full day's effort for a full day pay, I ought to do this, so I go. Some of our kids go to school because I ought to go. It's a rule, a law, I ought to go. Some of us go to work in the morning because we, or some of us go to work because of this ought to thing. Are you with mm-hmm. me? Some mm-hmm. of us take our wives to dinner out of ought to. Mm-hmm. It's a great motivator. Better, the job gets done a little better when we move it from fear to ought to. The third emotion that motivates activity in our lives is the emotion of love. And the feelings that surface here are, I get to do this. Okay? It's an honor. It's an honor. I get to go to work. I get to go to school. I get to take my spouse to dinner. And that's where the miracles occur, when people are able to lead themselves on this journey from fear to love. Have to, ought to, I get to do this. It's a gratitude mindset shift. 
It is. It absolutely is. And there's a, is a huge ingredient that takes us from the ought to level and the love they want to get to. And this is the biggest aha for me. And that's why we've, we've created Impellus. That's what we're charging down because we, we believe now that we can teach people how to get to the get to level. And it's discovering meaning. What matter? What, what am I doing that matters to the planet? Am I doing something meaningful? One of the things about the, you know, the millennials, we all talk about the millennials. Millennials get this. They're already wanting to do something. A lot of them don't even care if they make money at it. They can make enough to live, they're fine. As long as I'm doing something that really matters. And the minute I am able to manage myself into the, I get to do this level, the thing that sneaks in the back door is our, our engagement goes off the charts. Mm-hmm. We, all of a sudden we're happy. Productivity goes off the charts because we're showing up as we get to get. There's a, there's a wonderful, uh, I don't know if you remember Beverly Sills, the name Beverly Sills, but she sure. was a famous singer back in the 50s, early yeah. 60s. She was at the Metropolitan Opera House, and she just sang a, uh, a matinee. And she was in her uh, room there at, uh, in the uh, theater, and they allowed some people to come visit her. And one of the people said, <clears throat> you know, uh, Ms. Sills, I noticed on the program you have to do this again tonight at 8 o'clock. And she said, no, I don't, actually. And he says, what do you mean? I, I just looked at the, the program, and you, you have to sing again at 8 o'clock. She said, no, I really don't. She said, I get to sing again hmm. at 8 o'clock. Hmm. And it changed the whole paradigm, mm-hmm. you know. And she says, at 6 o'clock, I start thinking about 1,000 people out there and somewhere around Manhattan getting babysitters, getting in their mm. car, having dinner, mm. on their way to the theater mm. to hear me sing. And she says, I can't wait till 8 mm. o'clock tonight. And, and you think about that. Think, now, you think, what, you, what would a CEO pay to have his or her people show up because they get to be there instead of having to be there? How do, how do CEOs and organizations develop that mindset shift, that yearning? Where have you seen it? How does it work? Well, well it, it, it works miracles, actually. And the thing, the thing is, we have discovered at Impellus, we have discovered a learning experience for the C-suite, for frontline managers, for the, the people on the front line that teach them these concepts. And you've got to be aware that those emotions are there. In fact, if you want a sobering experience today, stop and ask yourself, which emotion am I functioning under right now? Mm. You know, and I'm not going to ask you which emotion you're here. I'm, I'm assuming we'll you're here to. because you get 100% get to. Okay. I'm here because yeah. I get to be here. Another okay. interview will be fear. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and so you make them aware of that. Then what are the tools that... I need to get, get my people on the journey from fear to love. And we've discovered some menus. That's what the three gaps is all about. You know, that's what Impellus is all about. We've discovered some very exciting blueprints, we can talk about that in a minute, yeah. that help people get on this journey. And the byproduct, the reason I call it happiness quest, you know, we call it bookend. You know, I started with time quest. <clears throat> I've discovered now that that's not all. There, there's more to it than that. If we're gonna reach the point, everybody wants to be happy, but they're not sure what that means. They're not sure what, you know, first of all, I think, well, I gotta have a Mercedes Benz, I gotta have a big house, I gotta have a, a golf membership at the local club, and then all of a sudden, but I'm not happy. Why, why am I not happy? That's not what brings happiness. That meaning thing is what brings it, and it, happiness is a byproduct of that. 
And all of a sudden, when you're showing up and doing more of what you're doing because you get to instead of have to, one day you wake up and say, you know, I'm really happy. I'm loving this. And you may be in a trailer. I don't know where you live. <clears throat> but you can have that wherever you live, regardless when did, when did of what you, you have. When did you achieve that? When did that happen for you? You know, that, I think that's, that's happened to me all my life. I think that I've, I've known that I, I was here for a reason, and I'm, I'm meaningfully doing what matters most to me, and I've experienced an unbelievable happiness. I've made some huge mistakes. We'll talk about that. You know, and those, are, those are downers. But, but what I've been giving my life to is something that I've always done because I get to do it. You can't, you can't give 7,000 speeches and stay fresh for every single one right. unless you're there because you get to be right. there. And you and I know lots of speakers who mm -hmm. do it because they have to or they ought to and they're mm -hmm. bad. You know? and, and the interesting thing is you know, when, when somebody comes to work or you're working with a client, if you're working with a client and you're there because you have to, do you think the client can tell? 100%. Absolutely. Now they may not be able to say, you're out of fear today, you know. Right, but right. they know, Feel huh, you know, <clears throat> can they tell if you're there for ought to? Absolutely. And they can also tell when you're there because you love being there. You love them, you're there because you get to be there. And there's an energy there that you don't even know anything about, but they feel that energy. And that's why I believe this company grew like it did. <clears throat> I mean, we went from three people in my basement, Dick Winwood, me and my wife, to 4,000 people. Right, you know, how right. does that happen? That doesn't happen because we had to do it. And, you know, I, let me tell you a wonderful experience. It, and a good friend of mine owns a big company here in Salt Lake. Came over one day. This is 20 years ago. And he said, Hiram, there's this wonderful feeling here at Franklin. How do you get that feeling? And I said, well, you know, I'm not sure, but I think everybody kind of buys into the fact that what we're about is helping people change their lives. That's kind of what we do. And uh, he said, really, he said, would you mind if I walked around and talked to some of your people? I said, sure. So he walks out into our warehouse. You know, used to be a warehouse. I don't know what that big, long building is out there now. Warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> warehouse. And there was a guy in his 60s sweeping the floor, janitor, okay? And so Bob walks up to him and he says, what do you do here? And Bob told me this. He's, the guy stopped and he leaned on his broom and he said, I'm changing lives all over the world. <laughs> and Bob, I mean, he connected his he role connected, to the mission he, of the organization. Bob and, sprints back to my yeah. office, kicks open my address. You planted that bugger out there. He said, I don't even know where you've been. But somehow, this guy translated what he was doing into the mission and right. vision of what we were doing. He was helping change But, but his lives. leader did too. Right? Absolutely. He had to go all the way down. Yeah. Now, I'm not, you know, I wish I could tell you exactly how we did that, but... We believed we were doing that. So I've experienced, you know, I know what meaning is, I know what to do something meaningful about. I've lived my life doing that. And it's been fun, and it's been hard work. And then, you know, you have a level of energy that, that you can't even explain. Hmm. I mean, I, there are times when I would teach six days a week and come back and rest for a day and go back and teach six more days. I mean, how do you do that? If you you and don't... thousands of colleagues did that. Absolutely. Right? And we had 150, 165 amazing presenters that were doing the same thing, right. you know? And lives were being changed. And, but it was all about productivity back then. Value-based goal setting was good stuff. But now, you know, I, I realized there's more. And it, I, I think we got people out of the have to to ought to, and they're feeling good about it. How do we go to the next phase? So I want to spend plenty of time talking about the three gaps. Okay. Before I go there, um, 
spontaneously, as you think about the most productive people you know, I mean, you know, you may not like this moniker, but you are considered by millions as sort of the father of modern time management. You're credited with inventing the Franklin planning process. You've sold hundreds of millions of Franklin planners. You've taught hundreds of millions of people on the concepts. You're an expert on productivity. <laughs> when you think about the most influential and productivity people, people you know, uh, what comes to mind? What traits, what behaviors, characteristics? Well, number one, they, they, they care about what they're doing. They care about the people they're working with. So they have a reason to be more productive. If you don't have a reason to be more productive, you won't be. That's why we, when we, remember we used to teach that productivity pyramid and sure. we tell people at the base of that pyramid, you identify your governing values and then you set your goals and then eventually at the top of the pyramid you're managing today. And people who absolutely know, A, who they are, why they're on the planet, that's the mission statement. In fact, one of the one fun conversations that Steve and I had when we were putting our companies together, because he always talked about mission statements and we always talked about values. And he said, it's not values, it's mission statement. And I would say, no, it's not mission statement, it's values. And then we both had this amazing aha. And the, this blinding flash of the obvious is when you identify your governing values and you put them in writing, you have discovered in writing who you are. You've got a written description of who you are. <clears throat> the mission statement is a written description of why you're on the planet. Two very different things. But once you identify your values and you know what really matters to you, the mission statement pops out of it. I've got 16 governing values. My mission statement is to make a difference, okay? I've read and your so, values, they're kind of daunting in the back. Well, I had to yeah. put it down because they were kind of so irritating to me. Because <laughs> I knew them to be true, but I can't live this standard. I had to pick it back up. Well, you notice that I wrote my values as if I had already done it, okay? as, affir as affirmation. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. but the interesting thing is, the people that I know that are really productive care about the people they work with, they care about what they're doing, and so it matters to them to get things done. And so there's a need to be productive. But there's also the practical aspect. They must also be better at organizing information. They have a process daily. I mean, you've talked a lot about that yeah. in your You know what's amazing? Writings. I was in Nashville 10 days ago, and I was speaking to 300 CEOs. And I asked, the, I do this wherever I go. I said, how many of you ever heard of a Franklin planner? So I start off, how many of you ever heard of a Franklin planner? 90% of the hands go up. This is today, 2018, you know? And th that's really remarkable because this, the reason the planner was so powerful wasn't the paper, it was the concept behind it. The, the, the principles of time management that we taught are, they're forever, they're right. eternal. And, and so, you know, it doesn't matter what, you know, tool you have. It doesn't matter if it's a tablet do. or a phone yeah, or a paper can be, planner. You know, right. The fact is, right. what matters right. is that I'm doing the basic things, you know, that's that planning and solitude time that, that we talk mm -hmm. about. Yeah. You know, what, yeah. are you spending 10 to 15 minutes every single day with yourself? Okay, let's go there now. Okay, Because I think, I think <laughs> that some of the practicality is so valuable to everybody. So yeah. you've co-authored or authored nearly a dozen books, and some of them have been just, you know, uh, global bestsellers. Uh, this book, which is a smaller book that you wrote, called The Three Gaps. I've actually read it twice. It's, a, it's sort of um, a synthesis of things that you've learned also brought through stories of three particular individuals, right? You organize the book in three gaps. You also refer to it as, um, I've heard you refer to it as the, the happiness gap. Walk us through the three gaps, why there are three, and why they're so relevant 
not just to individuals, but to organizations, which is your passion now, okay. through the new group Impellus. Okay. Well, one of, the, one of the products that Impellus has is this whole idea of closing these three gaps. And the <clears throat> people have, there are three gaps in most people's lives. We'll talk about each one of them. But if I'm going to ultimately move from have to to want to get to, mm -hmm. I've got to close these three gaps. And w this is why closing these three gaps would be very important to a CEO, a frontline manager, or an individual, okay? Now, let me tell you what the three gaps are and then the question that's answered by each one. The first gap we call the belief gap, then there's a goal or time gap, and then there's a value gap, right. okay? The question answered, and, and there's a gesture, you know, I want you to commit to memory today. Okay? A gesture? A gesture, okay. now watch I'm my ready. hand, do this with your hand. Put your left hand here, bring your right hand out here. Now bring your hand in close like this. Boom, now do it again. Okay, you get it. That's all that's all about. Okay, it's closing gaps, okay? Yeah. So the question answered with the belief gap, is there a gap between what I believe is true and what is actually true? Because if there is a gap, I'm in trouble. For example, suppose I believe that gravity only works in the morning. I'm gonna have a rough afternoon, okay? Suppose I believe that my value as a human being is having a lot of stuff. I believe that. What will I spend my life doing? Acquiring stuff, okay? What if I believe that men are better than women and my boss is a woman, have I got a problem? So if my belief system isn't lined up with reality, I'm gonna be in big trouble, okay? If a CEO believes that his company can do X and it's absolutely impossible to do X to ask people to do that, his belief system mm -hmm. or her belief system isn't in line with reality. So we discovered a blueprint and that's what the, the reality model is all about. How do I challenge my beliefs? That's what the belief window is all about. Talk about the belief window for a few minutes. So well, the fact is, and this is in the, the belief gap, the fact is we all have this window. And I say, tell us, it's right in front of your face and a little wire comes from the back, hooks onto it, and every time you move, your window goes with you. And you look out into the world through this window, you accept information from the world in through this window. And on this window, you place principles and beliefs that you believe are correct. They may or may not be correct, but you believe they are, okay? That's my belief window. So then we move to the next piece of the model, and that's where we set up our rules. You know, and we set up our rules that will govern our behavior based on what we believe is true. And then the next piece of the model is, my, I, I act, I do stuff. I, I go out and I actually do stuff. And now if we go back to the first part, there's a set of needs that drives us, okay? That, requires us to put beliefs on our belief window. Then we set rules, and then those rules govern our behavior. The last piece of the model is well, the results. What are the results of this? And the question we ask is, will the results of your behavior meet your needs over time? And if the answer and if is they no, do, if, if they, they do, you got a good belief on your belief right, window. If they right. don't, you got to examine your belief window. Right. Okay? So in other words, if I believe that uh, my self-worth is dependent on, on having stuff, at some point I'm gonna discover, I got all this stuff, why am I not happy, hmm. okay? Got a bad principle on my belief window. And so what the reality model does in this, this belief window piece is it helps you challenge your beliefs and find out why you're doing what you're doing. 
It's simple, very powerful, not necessarily easy. And to an organization or like a CEO or C-level person, why is closing the belief gap of people important? Because it has a dramatic impact on whether I'm going to get up to the get-to. It has a dramatic impact if I'm going to move out of having to. If I, if my yeah. belief system is going to drive me into being excited to do stuff or not. You know, this is profound. As you were talking about it, I was thinking, I report to the CEO here, and uh, he sets my, my larger priorities, but has little influence or, or um, concern, as concern, but little influence over how I spend my time day to day. He has me uh, focus on a particular project that in fact I think is probably a little bit too ambitious. His job is to set ambitious projects. And I'm challenging my belief gap right now in this studio Absolutely. about whether or not I can do it. And if I was to change my belief, I probably could accomplish this you know, big, hairy, audacious goal he set yeah. for the marketing Absolutely. department. But I've been kind of digging in thinking that I don't believe that I, I can do it. But see, if, in, uh, until that belief changes, it ain't gonna happen. And in, in Pellis, which is an organization outside of Franklin Covey, yep. you teach organizations how to close that belief gap in people. Absolutely, right? absolutely. In fact, the, the fun thing about Impellis is we, we, have, we have an experiential learning experience for the C-suite where, where, where they learn all of these principles, but we take them out and we, you know, we throw them off a 300-foot cliff and they, they want a very small rope, and we teach them they can do hard things. And they learn this stuff experientially which is easy to do with the C-suite, but you can't put 4,000 people in the right. company through that. So right. we've learned how to have an experiential learning experience in the company for the frontline leaders and for the managers, okay. and we can teach them how to close these gaps, okay? And, there, and there's, there's, there's a lot more to it, but this is just one piece of it. We also have a marvelous uh, learning experience for families. Hmm. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be great if you could teach your children to do their homework because they get to, not because they have to. What if you could teach your children to get out of bed in the morning because they get to, not because they have to? Well, I'm going to leave know? today thinking about those three. <laughs> uh, every time I do something, am I at the, yeah. you know, yeah. need because, to or want to or get absolutely. to? Absolutely. You know, you, you, you ask the question, why would a CEO care about whether, where people are? Because if they, if they can, if I can, here's what I learned when I was at ADP, and this is a big aha for me as a young manager. My people would do everything I wanted them to do as long as I was in their physical presence, because hmm. they had to, right? The minute I left, got on my plane and went back to wherever I went back to, what would they do? What they want to do. And so I discovered that my job as a manager, leader, was to surround my people in an atmosphere that would have them do what I've asked them to do because they get to, not because they have to. Hmm. And now I get back on my plane, don't have to worry about it. Sure. Are you with me? Move to, huge. Move huge. to the second gap. So first gap is closing this belief gap. Closing the belief the, the, gap. The gap Absolutely. I have right now with a project my Absolutely. CEO wants Absolutely. me to accomplish. Absolutely. Um, stay tuned, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to get there. Um, <laughs> he may never speak to me again. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I think okay. he'll, be, he'll be delighted because you're okay. teaching me to accomplish okay. what he wants me to do. Yeah. Maybe Franklin Covey yeah. should hire Impellis. Yeah. Um, second is the values gap. Okay. Talk the, about that. The value gap is a huge one. Go back to this. Is there a gap between what matters most to me and what I'm actually doing? Yeah. For example, if I value being physically fit and I weigh 400 pounds, am I in pain? Clearly. Yeah. Why? Because 
I'm not doing what value, if I value being financially okay, and I'm half a million dollars of debt, I'm in pain. So how do I get peace in my life? I've got to close that gap. So we developed a simple but powerful blueprint. How do you close that goal gap? I set a goal, you know, how do I close that value? I've identified what matters, how do I close that? It's not a necessarily easy process, but it's relatively simple, okay? I've got to bring this in line with what really matters most to me. Most people are unhappy because there are huge gaps in their values, okay? I value... The story in the book around the gaps closure and the lady is... is um, yeah. Linda... Uh, Linda, uh, Linda yeah, yeah. yeah. She was... The story is profound. Yeah, it is. It's a great story. Why but, do organizations, again, care about closing individual value gaps? Because when the individual has their gaps closing, <clears throat> they automatically are discovering meaning, engagement increases, and productivity increases, and it matters big time. If I'm a CEO and I've got 4,000 people, I want every one of those people to be aware of the gaps, be aware of where they are on this, this, this fear, duty, love thing, and if they're closing the gaps, they are automatically seeing their engagement increase, their productivity goes up, and they wake up in the morning and say, I'm happy. Explains the custodial story about the Absolutely. gentleman who realizes Absolutely. he's changing That's lives, a but story. he's still sweeping the floors. Yeah, yeah this guy yeah. was a retired Air Force sergeant. Yeah. You know? Talk about the third gap, the time gap. Okay, the time gap or the goal gap. Here's the, you know, is there a gap between what I said I'd do today and what I did today? Daily. <laughs> okay. Yes, sir. And if there is a gap, how do I close that? You know, that, that gap, we built a company around, for crying out loud. You know, it's not rocket science. You know, you take time planning your day, you spend 10 or 15 minutes in the morning, you plan, you know, this is not rocket science. I create a task list, you know. One of the things that's really important, this is uh, one of those ahas that we had back in the beginning that, that really built this company is we told the world that time management had nothing to do with a clock. People said, excuse me? I said, yeah, time management has nothing to do with a clock. And you know, Einstein gave us the wonderful definition of time. He said, time is the occurrence of events in sequence, one after the other. Say it again. Time is the occurrence of events in sequence, one okay. after the other. Management, according to the dictionary, is the act of controlling. So what's time management? The act of controlling events. Well, the next question is, what events do I have any control over? Okay? And now we taught people how to identify events I can control, some control, no control. How do I deal with an event I can't control? You adapt. You roll with it. Don't worry about it. Everybody spends time worrying about events they cannot control. And so the issue is, can I control the events over which I have some control? That was the whole theme of Time Quest. And that's why we then said, okay, you know, if, if you'll take some time each morning or late at night, when it's done isn't important, have some personal time, go through those seven things that you and I were talking about, then I'm going to have a better day because I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be proactive instead of reactive today. The world lives in the reactive mode. Now, can we talk about technology for a minute? Please. When technology came, and I'll never forget the day, the guy from uh, 3Com came into my office and he put a Palm Pilot on my desk. And he said, this is gonna revolutionize how people manage their time. And I picked it up and I looked at it and I fooled with it and I said, you know, this is a great toy, 
but no one will ever buy one. <laughs> I turned out to be wrong about that. <laughs> you know, we ended up selling. I think Franklin Quest or we sold, sold more Palm we Pilots sold than anybody 10, else in the thousand Palm Pilots a week. Yes, for months. Yes. Okay, and it was it was cool. You know, you know, this was a very cool thing. Well, the fact is, you know, when we started Franklin, there were no PCs, no iPads, no Palm Pilots, you know, nothing. There were no cell phones, for great out loud. And so the planner was king. Are you with me? And we taught these concepts that made the patent planner make sense. Well, all of a sudden, technology is here. Well, now we thought that technology was the answer to everything. But here's what's happening with the, with the, the iPhone, the smartphones. Everybody has one. And what happens with that technology, and understand, technology has made our lives a lot better. I mean, I, my, my uh, iPhone goes to my hearing aid, so I can talk to you through my it hearing does. aid. So how cool is that? Yeah, yeah. But the iPhone does three things we've discovered that are, that, are, that are becoming tragic. The first thing it does is it distracts us. Right. And we've discovered through the studies, they've done a lot of studies. I'm going to find out who they are one day. They do some great studies. But they've discovered that, that people look at their iPhone over 500 times a day. Mm -hmm. So it's a distraction. Huge hit on productivity. The next thing it does, it hacks our brains. And our brain becomes absolutely tuned to that buzz. Well, I talked to Corey Kogan, and who is our productivity practice leader in yeah. the studio, and she talked about the dopamine. It is. The yeah. psychological effect that absolutely our, bi yeah. our, our mind is being reprogrammed. Right. Right. And then the third thing that happens we're addicted. Yeah. So it distracts, it hacks our brains, and then it addicts us. And so I'm, I'm sitting in a restaurant a few weeks ago, and a lovely couple comes in with two children, probably in their late 30s, 12, 10-year-old, and they sit down, and all four of them produce a smartphone. Okay? And I actually took a picture. They didn't know I took a picture, but I took a picture of this. And they're sitting at the table through the entire meal, all four of them, didn't say a word to each other, hooked on their things. Now that's anecdotal, but you know that's happening a lot out there. People are, are we have more connectivity than ever in our history with because of our ability to communicate, and people are still feeling lonely. How is that possible? So we've got to understand that technology, though, can be a wonderful tool. At the same time, it's not going to help me get from have to to get to unless there are some basic principles that I'm willing to follow and, and me a human being, and these principles go back away. That's why the seven habits are still relevant and will always be That's relevant. true, yeah. Your friend Steve. My friend Steve. <laughs> In our final <laughs> minutes, let's talk about some of those principles. Before I go to that, the three gaps are your belief gap, your values gap, and your time gap. Right. I think it's self-evident why a CEO in a company would be interested in closing the time Absolutely. gap, right? It's all Absolutely. about productivity. You have for 50 years uh, 5,000 or more experiences taught some principles that are still relevant or more relevant today than they were 50 years ago. Uh, there's these seven sort of time management principles you teach that are part of uh, the time gap. And you, you've kind of renamed it these sort of 15 magic moments every day. Yep. I'm going to ask you about the seven in a second okay. here. Describe for everybody why it's important to have these 15 minutes each day with the impact it has not just on your day but on your life. Well, the fact that it has an impact on your life is it definitely impacts your day. And we, you know, we, live, we live our lives by days. And we say if, you're, if you really want to be in charge of your day, you've got to isolate yourself from the world for 15 minutes. It could be 20, it could be 12. 
And this isn't shower time. This isn't commute time. This is your time. You're by yourself. You have to go up in the attic, attic fine. And in that 15 minutes, you've got to become one with yourself, okay? And decide, what am I going to accomplish today that matters to me? And then you create a plan for the day. Now, if you don't create a plan for the day, then you are going to live in the reactive mode all day. But when you have a plan, you've created a shield, okay? Now, if I come to work with no plan and an interruption occurs, what will I do? Acquiesce. Acquiesce, absolutely. We're going to let the unexpected beat us to death. But the plan is your shield, okay? So somebody comes in, you know, you know what an interruption is. This when somebody comes into your office believing that you care, okay? And, and the issue is, how do you get that person out of your office so you stay focused on right. what matters yeah, to you? Yeah. Are you I met that person. <laughs> okay. So, so now I got a decision to make. Am I going to do what my plan suggests or am I going to do what the interruption, the, the unexpected right. demands? Right. And sometimes the unexpected wins, sometimes the plan wins. But if there's no plan, this always wins. This is a passion for you because you've Absolutely. spent, again, you've spent the vast majority of your life Absolutely. teaching how important these 15 magic minutes Absolutely. are. It used to be longer. You've shortened yep. it because it's not as yeah. you know, likely to spend you know, an yeah. hour now. Yep. Let, let's walk through some of the components. So yeah. you advise that the first part of these 15 magic minutes or seven components, first is find a quiet place. Yes. Talk about that. That's it, be alone. You need to be alone. You can't have a cell phone ringing. You can't have a TV on. You know, you don't want to. You don't want anything right. in your ears listening. Right. This is where you are by yourself, so you can be one with yourself. That's first. Simple enough. Number two, then, is you say kind of seek or find inspiration. Yeah, talk Th- about that. Th- this 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 can be just thinking. It can be praying if you're a religious person. It can be a, a yoga experience. It can be an experience where I just want to become whole. You know, just think about you know what matters most to me. And so it's a, peri- it's a period of thinking, you know, do I matter? Yeah, I matter. Thinking about what really matters to you, the human being. And as you center yourself with that, for me, it's prayer. I think, you know, it can be reading the scriptures, if you believe in the scriptures. But it's this re-centering yourself that, you know, I'm on the planet for a reason. Third, then, find a quiet place, seek inspiration. Third is review your values. Yeah. Talk about the importance of how your values drive your day. Well, it's because my values drive my goal-setting process. If I value being physically fit, well, what am I going to do today? What's a long-range goal for being physically fit? Well, by October 31st, I'm going to lose 20 pounds. That's a long-range goal. What's the intermediate goal? Well, I've got to exercise every day. I've got to walk, whatever. What am I going to do today? So today, in my daily task list, I'm going to walk four miles, okay? And if I do that and earn a check at the end of the day, I have just done something today that came from my governing values. So if I've written them down and I know what they are, then I can see, are they going to have impact on my day today? Or get lost. Or get lost. To the, yeah. yeah. You spend most of chapter two in here on the second gap around the values clarification process Absolutely. and how, how instrumental, how non-negotiable leaders have to identify their values. Otherwise, they'll just be subject to everybody else's. And Yeah. Absolutely. So fourth is integrate your long-range goals, which is easier said than done, right? That's right. Because daily planning, you can get caught up in just checking off your daily appointments and not be connected to your long-range. Yeah, you may have long-range goal that you do nothing about today, but make that a conscious decision, not default. Does that make sense? Sure. So in other words, I have a long-range goal to be financially okay. 
and I'm, I'm going to a class to, to I improve. think you've accomplished that. <laughs> Truth be told. Well, we are okay, you <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah. And, and, but, but yeah, you've got to plan it. That doesn't happen. Right. It, you plan it. It wasn't accidental. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Next three are very tactical. List your appointments, list your tasks, and then prioritize your tasks. Absolutely. Talk about the difference between listing appointments and then listing your tasks. Well, that, that's one of the magics of the planner. You know, how to place on the left-hand page all of your appointments, okay? Appointments are time you've given to somebody else. Which, in essence, now Outlook is running now yeah. for us. Okay, yeah, okay, so you're Outlook. So, yeah. so okay, I've got, I've got four meetings today that I'm not going to have any control over my time in those meetings. So I can't work on a task list during that time. Are you with me? Sure. So now I've got to say, I've got 15 tasks. Unless you're in the chairman's office and you're trying yeah. to do your task list while you're <laughs> You're cheating. He's called me out on that a few times. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. Okay, now I've got, I've got 15 tasks. Okay, well, what, what are the A's? And that's a simple, old, pro ancient process. Identify the A's, the B's, the C's. Okay? A means vital, must be done. B means important, should be done. C means trivial, could be done. Okay, now I've got A, B's, and C's. Where do I start on the list? Most people start with the C's because they're quick and easy. But if I'm disciplined, I'll start with the A's. So at the end of the day, I've done A, one, two, three, and four, and what's left on my list may be some B's and C's. That's okay because I move those to the next day. The magic is I'm in charge. And there's a wonderful feeling that comes when you're in charge. That's tactical, but you know what? Every time you get a check for doing a task, you flooded with morphine. You know, you, you know the, right. your brain creates yeah. morphine. Huh. So if you want a natural high, get a check. You spend a lot of time in your book talking about the, the vital importance of not just listing your values and listing your tasks, but prioritization. It's a simple but profound well, you, concept. You need to prioritize your values, you know, the, too. I mean, that's important. A lot of people, why would I prioritize values? Suppose one of your values is integrity right. and one of them is loyalty, mm -hmm. okay? How do you prioritize those things? Suppose your boss asks you to do something that violates your integrity. Okay? You have a story about that. Right? If, if loyalty is above integrity, you're going to do it. If integrity is above loyalty, you'll tell your boss, I don't do that. Okay? So putting your values in priority is pretty important. You mentioned earlier about these two bookends in your life. Is kind of first professionally was the Franklin Quest Company yeah. that became the yeah. Franklin Covey Company now, yeah. which is by most standards the most influential leadership development firm in the world. I'm honored to be a part of, and you're here today. And you're a big part of it. Now. Well, I'm a small part, but it's because of you and Steve's. I can't yeah. say it without smiling. <laughs> you and Dr. Covey's legacy that allows thousands of people in the firm to live our passions. We get to do these jobs every day. I'm very clear on that. The other bookend after Franklin Quest was this, this company referred to as Impellus, that is Happiness Quest. Yeah. If an organization wants to become interested in the three gaps, I guess they can um, they can They go Google to the Impellus website. Impellus website. That's right. Yeah. right. And, and the Impellus. There are a number of, of things that we do at Impellus. One is the three gaps, okay? One is this experiential learning for CEOs. One is a wonderful experience for families. But the whole thing is designed at helping people discover meaning, meaning in their lives, because the byproduct of discovering meaning, and all of the Ampelis products do this, is increased engagement, which CEOs absolutely worship, and productivity. And the byproduct for me is I'm happy. Why is happiness important to a CEO, my happiness? 
Because if I'm truly happy, your productivity, your turnover, I, I require your very little management. Right, right. Ask yourself the question: How much management is required of somebody at the have to level? A lot. Right, right. How much management it's is exhausting. required of somebody at get to get out of their way? In fact, in fact right? they're inspiring you. Absolutely. And helping to improve your processes. Absolutely. And, yeah. So that's yeah. what Ampelus is all about. Yeah. And we're having yeah. some. It's a ball. We're having a ball. It's yeah. just a lot of fun. And, and you're, you're in the 25th anniversary of your 50 year, you're still out speaking and keynoting. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. People can actually contract with you through Franklin sure. Covey, through Impellus to speak on our message, their message. Yes. yes. You're out traveling probably more than you want. <laughs> but, uh, well, I do have a rule. If it takes more than three movies to get there, I don't, I'm not going. Yeah. I've got six million miles on commercial aircraft, so that's a lot. That's awesome. But yeah, I'm still on, and I'm going to do that till I die because I love to do it. Yeah. Tell your wife, we said hello. I'll do it. What an absolute And you got to come person. down and ride horses. I'd with love us to. Again. My boys had a great uh, <laughs> summer at your ranch last year. I a, know. It was so generous of you and your wife. Hiram, as we finished in the last minute, you shared the Winston Churchill story, which is hard for most people to relate to someone who's met, you know, Winston Churchill. As you kind of crescendo, as Dr. Covey would say, into the final, you know, quarter century of your life, I wish you well on that. Um, what would you say is your best advice to up-and-coming leaders in organizations who want to leave a legacy, who want to live uh, a congruent life? You talk a lot about living congruently and closing the gaps. What is some last, um, less aspirational, more practical advice for leaders who are trying to make their mark and inspire others to bring congruence in their life? What, what advice would you give people? You know, I think the, the one big thing I would ask them to, to internalize is that failure is part of growth. Failure is part of growth. You know, I made some big mistakes in my life. It was painful, and, but, you know, we've come back from that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every manager leader is going to make a mistake. They're going to fail at something. Failure is not fatal or final. It's a learning experience. There's a great general once said, no... Uh, battle is, uh, what did he say, no battle is permanent or something. It's only preparation for the next and greater battle. No, no battle is final. It's preparation for the next and greater battle. And if people internalize that, then it's okay to make a mistake. And, you know, having made some mistakes and come back from those, uh, I can now say, you know, I learned from that. I don't, I don't think I'd want to learn it that way again, you know, but I've learned from those mistakes. And it's made me a stronger, better person. And I am able now to do a lot, not everything, but a lot of, most of what I do now is I do because I get to. When I was young with my wife and we had babies, I changed their messy diapers. I could never get that to get to. I got it to ought to one or two times, but I could never get it to get to. Are you with yeah, me? Yeah. But again, Ask yourself the question. I'll what leave am I today doing thinking about right get to a lot. Yeah. Sir, Thank I am you. honored that I my got pleasure. to Good spend to an you. hour with you. Thank you for your confidence in me and my career. I'm oh, grateful to you. You've been great. I've been, I followed your career and I'm thrilled with no, you. You helped doing. make my career, so I'm honored to you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Hope to have you back. Hey, we'll do it. And great success to you and your okay. team on The Three Gaps. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We hope you found some great nuggets and lasted to the end because some of the best parts are the very end of this video. And we will see you next week for Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hiram, sir. Thank you. Thank you.